previously on Something Who. Welcome to the podcast where we take something old, a Doctor Who story from the original series, compare it with something new, one from the new series, and add something borrowed to make Something Who. Hello, I'm Richard, and we're back with Something Who podcast, where we discuss a couple of Doctor Who stories that revisit the locations of previous adventures. First, we'll look at Sixth Doctor story, Attack of the Cybermen, from season 22. And after that, we'll examine Twelfth Doctor caper, Twice Upon a Time, which was his final outing in Christmas 2017. So with me to decide whether these stories are worthy sequels or pale imitations, we have a great lineup. Starting with the return to our ranks of the multi-talented 3D artist, writer, researcher, podcaster and co-creator of Dalek 63 to 88, Gav Rymel. Hello. Hey. Fantastic. Next up, science and astronomy writer Giles. Evening. Good to be back. And finally, a newcomer to Something Who, but very well known, I'm sure, to our listeners, graphic designer and illustrator Anthony Lamb. Hello. Good to see you. Yeah, yes. And you too. So, Twice Upon a Time, mm. uh, written by Stephen Moffat and directed by Rachel Talalay, and uh, visually beautiful, I think, you know, in, I agree. in, in you know, combination with a lot of stuff that was shot by Rachel Talalay. Uh, it's Christmas 2017, Moffat's final fling, and we're returning to the scene of Tenth Planet, sort of. I suppose my initial thing to say is I remembered there being Cybermen in this, but there aren't any uh, other than in the black and white at the very start. I think they were in a cut scene, weren't they? There's a, there's a longer edit of the Tenth Planet stuff at the beginning. There is indeed. I saw yeah. it online only a couple of days ago. Someone shared it around. It's not a full version, though, is it? We've only got sort of scraps that have been cobbled together. I think so. Or is a, I- is a fuller version turned up? Because I would love to see. I it. don't think it's official or anything. It's not a, a special edition of the episode or anything. But I think it's just bits. But as I'm on, I'd, a varying quality. I guess so. I don't know how much they filmed, memory. so it's hard to say if it's complete or not. Strange, strange choice to build such big sets, mm. do such recreations, and then use almost none yeah. of it. Yeah, it is odd. Mm. I it's a it's minor point, but I always find myself mildly vexed that. Polly's outfit isn't red like it should be. Mm. It's sort of a dusky pink instead. I mean, maybe they just thought red would pop too much. Mm. But it's to me, that outfit is iconic. She had it in Tenth Planet. She had it in mm. the first section of Power of the Daleks. Mm-hmm. And I, I just really like it. And so I was quite excited to hear that they were going to be recreating it. And then they just get the colour wrong. It's, a, it's, a, <laughs> it's, it's possible pedantry on my part, but... I don't care. Hmm. It's, it's more the fact that Ben is is clearly a yard higher than um the Michael Craze. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I find disconcerting. It's a weird. About this. The, the, the whole beginning of that is is weird, and I I still I don't really know how I feel about it all. I suppose that scene encapsulates the whole episode, or the the issues with mm. the whole episode is that it's very knowing. It's predicated on you and you appreciating the entirety of Doctor Who and it then sort of informs lots of the in-jokes mm. that come later. Now, the mind boggles at, at what a, a an average member of the public would have made of that first five minutes. Mm. It's so self-indulgent. And I found myself, every time I watch it, knowing that it's directed precisely like a laser at someone like me. I just feel deeply self-conscious that I know that fact and that anyone who just strays slightly out of that laser beam will be completely lost. And it's all just so jarring. Uh, and, and the movement between the aspect ratio and the black and white and the colour and then the deep faking yes. Bradley into Hartnell and morphing the two together, but then having dialogue that acknowledges that his face yeah. is different attributing it to the regeneration, which I don't like, but is made worse by 
Ben and Polly having been recasted, yeah. as Giles just said, that they're so different. Things are so different. It's not like, you know, I think we've mentioned before the the Tribbles episode of Deep Space Nine where they go back and absolutely perfectly recreate yeah. 1960s Star Trek. Yeah. You know, we're not in that territory. We're in a kind of weird no man's land, if you'll yeah. pardon the pun for this episode, where it's it's not it's it's in the uncanny valley of like when we finally see um, the first Doctor's TARDIS set. It's ninety percent there, but it's not a faithful recreation because they use that wall from Day of the Doctor and and that kind of thing. So I that whole opening just leaves me with so many mixed feelings. I can't deny it's engaging. I mean, I sat there, I was I was queuing it up to watch later, and I, and I pressed play for one second, and before I knew it, I'd watched everything up to the title sequence. Mm-hmm. Because I just, you know, it, it gripped me. So it, it's it's very, I find it very hard to form a coherent opinion on. Because I think it's baffling, but enthralling. Do you, I wonder if it's baffling to you more than it would be the average viewer, to reference your previous argument. Oh, you, yeah, you're definitely. You're aware yeah. of the inconsistencies, whereas some random... They might, as long as I think, as long as they understand that the Doctor has a past incarnation who is about to regenerate, and they're both struggling with the same question of do they want to? Which yeah. That, and that's not even touching on the question of why do they get to decide if they want to or not. Hmm. <laughs> like they they keep coming back to that point, uh, and I'm like, just like you shouldn't get to say it's like you're gonna die and regenerate. It's hmm. fine. But no, I think I wonder if like, I, I feel the same inconsistencies, and I wonder if that's a lesser problem for people who aren't actually knee deep in the history of the show and the characters. Mm. I feel that it's probably wise that they cut it down from the stuff that they shot and that they minimised minimised it. I think it's tricky. It's, until you said it, I would have. When the, and now now I feel like I'm slightly hypocritical for criticising Attack of the Cybermen. For going so overboard and continuity and, and giving <laughs> and basically you know being happy to give this a pass, but I I don't know how much of it would really and certainly the stuff with Ben and Polly I mean I, yeah that was a you know that's a joke and yeah we we all we all find it incongruous, but I don't think it yeah I don't think it would impinge on a on a random viewer. Oh no, and I think there was enough yeah. The, it it was publicised on the basis that the first Doctor was going to be coming back, and was part of part of mm. this. So I think I don't know how much the you know Joe public would have been disconcerted by like the first the first minutes or so just setting up that context, and the yeah in the, the Bradley thing yes it's it's weird that they bother with a throwaway you know with that throwaway line but it is it is very much a throwaway line that I don't think you're gonna I don't think I don't think it grates with anyone other than Doctor Who fans possibly. And it's a it's a t- it's a difficult it's a difficult Moffat over explaining things a bit like when he yes. goes to all that trouble of, of figuring out why why the doctor's got Peter Capaldi's face. I actually didn't notice the line you're referring to. Like mm. I, I watched this episode twice over the last few days mm. and it slipped me by both times. So I don't know if I just He says, he says something like what's happening? your your face is all yeah, over exactly. the place. Uh, yeah. uh, yes. Yeah. Which doesn't make any sense because we see the yes. morphing take place in the mm. studio of the Tenth Planet yeah. long before. But yeah, sorry, Jazz, but I, I was making sort of two distinct criticisms that I'd really sort of garbled into one, so it didn't really make much sense. But I suppose my, my two separate questions are, what does an average member of the public make of a story that begins with 709 mm. episodes ago? A black and white, yeah. and then the morphing, and then the transition to color, and all that. But separate to that, for me, is the the jarring business of of explaining the face, and and then like worrying about one piece of recasting, yeah. but but neither mm. of the others. I don't enjoy that. Like I said before, it, it it's the knowingness of the whole episode. Mm-hmm. You know, that there's a lot of dialogue, which is about patronizing the first doctor about the adventures that he's going mm. to go on and and peter capaldi's doctor having smug foreknowledge of how he'll be 
protector of the universe by the end of the next uh, millennia and a half, millennium and a half. I don't like that aspect of the Doctor at the best of times in the in the new series where you know where he's grandstanding, and so it it rankled when Peter Capaldi said the first Doctor gives the line that this is a level five planet or whatever, and then Peter Capaldi says and it's protected or defended or whatever he says, and the first Doctor says what by whom, and I don't like that element of the new series. Uh, so I'd rather it was not acknowledged. But also, it, it it feels even less desirable when when it's standing next to where Doctor Who came from, and and I spend a lot of my time steeped in the sixties. So seeing the sixties misrepresented here is jarring as well. But we'll we'll come on to that. Yeah. So so I mean, you've you, I guess you've you've dwelt on the fact that we've that it breaks the fourth wall immediately by by referring to mm. seven hundred and whatever it is episodes ago. Mm. And it feels like, actually, to some extent, they'd be better off continuing to break the fourth wall because, I mean, it's predicated, I guess, on adventure in space and time and the fact mm. that David Bradley has played William Hartnell in, in, in that play and they've made they've remade chunks of the original mm. or they've shown them making the, the, the story in that. And, it, and, and I don't know whether that's given them the idea for this story or... or I mean, I guess to, to, such, well, to some extent it has. I would like to take credit for it, if I if I may. Uh, I was at a, a party, Doctor Who magazine party, many, many years ago. And I said to Mark Gatiss, whoever you cast as William Hartnell in your upcoming drama, you've got a new first Doctor who you could then make canonical. Mm. And so I'm taking credit for that. There's absolutely no way he came up with that idea independently <laughs> nor did Stephen Moffat. That is 100% me, and that conversation is where it can be traced back to. That is a fact. I'll go and edit the Wikipedia page now, Gavin. Yeah. Thank it's, you, thank yeah. you. Cite this podcast. Then you told him about 97 episodes being found in... Um... <laughs> <laughs> no, he told me, and I and I just posted it on a forum. And that's all that happened. But, but I guess if... The story was about William Hartnell, and David Bradley was playing William Hartnell, then everything else in the story would make sense. Because, <laughs> well, David Bradley is playing William Hartnell. Yeah, isn't yeah, he? because because William Hartnell doesn't want to leave Doctor Who. Mm. He doesn't want to regenerate into Patrick Troughton. Mm. Mm. Uh, you know, and you know he has somewhat traditional attitudes. So, so all of the stuff that happens in the story makes sense <laughs> if the character is. William Hartnell. It makes very little sense if the mm. character is the first Doctor. <laughs> That's very true. That is very true. Yeah, I, I never massively got on with the the David Bradley interpretation of the first Doctor. The the sort of staccato delivery is a little bit bizarre and off putting, but but the portrayal, the scripting of the of the character of the first Doctor in this is uh, <laughs> quite is a bridge too far, really, isn't it? I mean. I, I struggled. I was I was trying to think today, watching it. Are there any examples at all of the first Doctor being in any way misogynistic or chauvinistic? And I couldn't think of it. I couldn't even think of any you could sort of bend to interpret that way. the The thing they made a a, a big deal out of was um, the Doctor saying he would give Bill Potts a jolly good smack bottom. Yeah. Which, of course, was a line to his granddaughter originally, his ward. You know, it was a parental line. It wasn't just, that's how I'm going to deal with any woman that I come across. It was a member of his family that he looked after. He never said that to Barbara. Exactly. Exactly. I was trying to think of any instance where he said anything to Barbara, which was vaguely reminiscent of what we got in Twice Upon a Time, yeah. and I failed to come up with anything. He's certainly paternalistic, or or sort of you, you, you know, in in that kind of ladies first kind of a way. To, but but you know, but, but I mean that that's it, that's certainly not misogynistic. That's just of its era, mm. isn't it? Mm. I don't have that big an issue with Bradley's portrayal, his acting. It's funny. It's it's the reverse of kind of the reverse of what we had when we way back when, when we looked at the five Doctors 
mm-hmm. was saying about the, that Terence Dix is writing for writing for the first Doctor properly and get, getting the character in, and there is the humour in there. And Herndl just goes and murders every murders every <laughs> line by appearing like this terrifying grumpy old man mm. and squashes all the humour that's in a lot of the lines out of, out of it. And this is almost the the reverse. I don't have a problem with Bradley's performance, but I think it's just Moffat going after a certain. It's not even really trying to portray. It's just using him as a as the butt of you know as the setup for a load of gags and you know. It's his it's his well, sitcom it's the setup thing. for the regeneration, yeah. isn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. Well, and the the other thing that this is it's it's going back to the well of um, Dare the Doctor, you know, on, as well on the basis of the success of that in terms of like the War Doctor. Let's have the grumpy one around, and the let's have the modern Doctor mm. and the mm, and the, yeah. the grumpy Doctor that doesn't know what's going to happen, and we can have fun. We can have fun with that. Yeah, it's a very know. similar dynamic. All, all that stuff with it, yeah. Is there going to be kissing? Is there going to be lots of kissing in the future and all of that sort of thing? It's <laughs> very, it's very much okay. That worked once before to great acclaim. Can we, um, yeah, dip back in? Which you can't. Yeah, I can't entirely blame him because it was like greatest hits. It was an extra episode that I guess he pulled unexpectedly at the end of when he thought he was going to be walking away, pretty much mm. to bridge the gap. One of the things I actually like about this episode is, like, so often in both old and new Doctor Who, I, as I may have said before to whoever, um, I really enjoy episode ones where before the peril kicks in. Mm-hmm. And I th- one of the things I mainly get from this is the entire episode pretty much is like that. Mm. There's never, mm. there's never any serious peril, mm. and it leaves leaves one with a, like a warming feeling, like especially mm. when you consider some of the messages in it. Yeah. So that's one of the things that I got from it rewatching it today. I think I like it more now than I did when it aired. Mm. Uh, I think because it's the mystery stuff, isn't it? Yeah. And as always with like a sort of tentpole episode, like a regeneration story, there's you always go into it with so much expectation and uncertainty. Mm. And now with the with the distance of time, you, know, you can just sort of sit back and think, oh yeah, this is doing its thing, and I'm quite enjoying it. Mm. And I, I mean, I do agree with the uh, misgivings about Bradley uh, stepping into Hartnell's shoes. I like the fact that they've done it because I'm always a, in great favour of trying things, even if you're not sure they're going to work. Like, I'd rather people try things and not quite hit the mark than not try at all. Mm. Yeah, it certainly does interesting things, and I, I would, yeah, yeah, yes, you're right. I'm, I'm glad that this episode exists, and that that. Uh, two doctors format was done because on balance in general the unfairness to the first doctor portrayal is relatively infrequent it's just quite outrageous when it when it happens i think i think it goes back to what i was saying before about the, the knowingness and like you said richard the fourth wall break the whole thing is a big fourth wall break as you said because it's because that character is a product of the 1960s, which he shouldn't be. Mm. And not only that, when you watch 60s Doctor Who, I, I'm not convinced that the Doctor feels like a character of the product of the 1960s. So there's two kind of um, stumbling blocks. Mm. But as a as a knowing reference, like you were saying, as you know, sort of accepting that it's William Hartnell more than it's the first Doctor, it it works. I mean, it works on that level. Whether it's intentional or a byproduct, you could try to enjoy it that way. I don't know. Just going to say something I noticed about it is it seems to borrow or reference a lot from the 1946 movie, A Matter of Life and Death, like in some very, very blatant ways. Oh, the freezing time and stuff like that. Yeah, it's got a lot. It's um, it's got someone taken away at the point of their death. They are not ready to die. And it, it, it's very literally referenced in the set of the Glass People. I forget their name. Who they have a big stairway, just like the in the in the film. Yes, testimony. Yes. yes. Yeah, testimony. The testimony people have a big stairway, and it seems very openly a strong reference to that. Which do you know? That's in my top ten favorite movies of all time, and I completely missed that. Until you've, until you've until you've just brought it up, but now you say it, yeah. I, I I've not seen that movie for I don't know about six years or something. 
But yeah, I'm going to probably rewatch it now off the back, off the back of this. It's fantastic. If people haven't seen it, mm. yeah, find it, watch it. Mm. It's an astonishing movie. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Aside from those points that I just mentioned, I don't remember much about it. So mm. it's definitely on my definitely on my list. Well, there's definitely there's that motif of that that time gets frozen every time mm. he every time David Niven's character has his mm. um, out of body experience, shall we say? Without I don't want to don't want to spoil it too much for anyone who hasn't seen it. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I don't I don't know if this will be a spoiler, but there's also a connect a connecting point regarding bartering. Like uh, Mark Gates' character mm. in this episode offers to barter his life. For bills, yes. I think a similar thing happens mm. in a, ma- um, a matter of life and death mm. as well. Yeah, aside from the aside from the Hartnell, the gripe about Hartnell's characterisation, I I enjoyed this a lot, and I remember, I think it's only the second time I watched it. I watched it on transmission, and I don't think, don't think I went back and watched it again straight up, you know, directly after. And yeah, it's it's one of those cases where. You don't know again. You don't know what you've got till it's gone, and possibly yeah. the you know because it's just like yeah. I remember at the time, thinking, okay, one more episode of Moffat, and then then we're into the new era. Mm. Little did we know, and I, I guess it's I guess it's possible overload. It is. It does hit on a lot of sort of Moffat era touchstones. I guess it's a, you know it's a bit. It's got bits like the the t shirt. You know, it's got a couple of t shirt moments, speeches, especially the Doctor's. Final monologue regeneration thing is a bit like oh god yeah the, that's one of those but I guess the fact we just had 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 that repeatedly for for six seven years at the time and looked back looked back on it in isolation it's you know it's great and it's you know it's got a lot going for it this one's a little bit odd though in that he's uh, talking to an empty room mm, yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> mm. yeah I I I found that really fell mm. flat the 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 speech at the end it felt very forced mm. and i felt very sorry for Stephen moffat having to write that having already written his finale in the previous episode mm. and then was cornered into writing a, a mm. christmas story that basically had to do something else but there must there must have been a regeneration scene of some sort at the end of after i watched this i went back and reminded myself by watching the last 10, 10 minutes or so of um, the Doctor Falls to just remind mm. to just remind myself of how, how exactly that ended and how it, how it led into this, and so there must have been yeah there there clearly must have been some some rejigging of that and he didn't go mm. yeah and there's there's no way it ended with exit Bill and Puddle Girl and then the Doctor regenerates in silence on the on the floor of the TARDIS. Mm. His hair was very different. I wonder if it was the final scene preserved from the previous shoot. Oh, interesting. I did notice his hair in that scene, but I wasn't sure if it was lighting or something. It was really different. I'd have to go back and compare it to the Cyberman episode, but um, that's a thought. But still, uh, whether it was new or old, I didn't like that Mm, speech. It didn't work for me. (laughs) And it... uh, it basically ends with live, laugh, love. Which yeah, exactly. Like... Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> mm. He didn't even like um, Never Cruel or Cowardly. Again, it's just the knowingness. Mm. It's just the reference. It's just the self-congratulatory. Mm. If you're a fan, you'll go, ah. But to me, it just goes, oh, but that's the thing from Terence Dix's thing mm. and it takes me out of it rather than rewarding me for being mm. a fan takes me out of the drama and reminds me that a Doctor Who fan has written this mm. scene and why is that dialogue significant ironically probably making it more accessible and approachable to a, a non-fan who would not think twice about that mm. line and think oh that's a nice turn of yeah. phrase but to me who this <laughs> someone like me who this episode is directed at like a laser as I said it just jolts me out of the the drama because I think, oh, Peter Capaldi's a Doctor Who fan. Stephen Moffat's a mm. Doctor Who fan. They're having fun on the set. Mm. I don't. I no longer feel these are characters. You know, these are real fictional. I, people. I was literally thinking those exact thoughts about Mark Gatiss. Like, he's obviously a mm. massive Doctor Who fan. I was thinking, oh, he must like doing these scenes in the TARDIS. It's, yeah, uh, it's uh, it takes the whole thing has a sort of company feel and. 
you know, knowing Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss are friends and he's given him the, you know, the main supporting mm. role in this finale, I don't object to it. I think he's very good. I and I like I like Mark Gatiss. He is. He's very good. Yeah. But it, it does have that sort of end of term yeah. feel. Just people enjoying themselves because why not? Yeah, I was going to say that's not that's not necessarily a bad thing to mm. just have a nice no. a nice experience. No, but it does bring an awareness. I think mm. that that's my point is that it, it's part of this sort of awareness is is that I don't look at Mark Gatiss and think oh he's been cast because he's mm. brilliant because whether he is or not is secondary to the fact I think oh Stephen Moffat's given his mate a role mm. in this. <laughs> I mean. Maybe his casting was totally coincidental and Andy Pryor <laughs> didn't know they were friends. But somehow, I suspect that's not it's the case. It's his best work, I would say, on uh, on the new series, you know, certainly as an mm. actor. I would, I would definitely mm. agree, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's, yeah, I think it's hefty. And that's the thing, I think when it gets, when the, I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's got various strands to it and it's got all this, Got all this nudge, nudge, wink, wink stuff, but I think when it when it disengages and goes over to the the strand of what's actually going on with the the test, testimony or whatever they're called, and you know, and this idea of okay, is it Bill or isn't it Bill, and all of that, it's I think mm. it's surprisingly meaty stuff and, and interesting in terms of what it's got mm. to you know. And I love the standoff between the the two soldiers, mm. Mm. and I think Mark Gatiss makes a wonderful, wonderful dad to Nicholas mm. Courtney yeah. if you like mm. it's really believable and really just fits but what a privilege mm. I mean granddad I think is it isn't he I think he has to be granddad because Brigadier must have been born around about 1940 or 1930 and the sons of this of this guy's are already alive in the 1910s fair point yes yeah, I think I think him. I was being misled mm. because he refers to his boys Mm. So my mind went to, oh, that's a reference to a character we know. But yeah, mm. you're right. You, it'll be granddad, won't it? Yeah. Coming coming back to the, the issue you were talking about five minutes ago. So just having a quick look. The, the filming for World Enough and Time, Dr. Force, concludes at the start of April 2017. And the filming for the Christmas special is June and July. So there's about a two-month gap between the two. So I guess they must have known what they were doing with the Christmas thing by the time they were they were winding up the filming on World Enough and Time, unless it was written in a real hurry. It'd be interesting to check the continuity between those. Yeah, sadly we can't. But yes, no. I mean, I mean, I like I, I, I like your theory, so I'm not I'm not kind of against it. Uh, mm. But that's just um, there's 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 a big enough gap in two months. So I mm. suppose they, it could have. Yeah, I just I can't see. Yeah, it's I don't know whether it would be an exact, but yeah, there there must have been something there at the end of the Doctor Falls. To um to give it more of a more of an out and lead into the regeneration. I don't think it'd have gone with a gone off with a quiet regener yeah quiet old series style regeneration. It didn't so, necessarily have the sense of build up you might otherwise expect. Mm. Uh, if they were if they were at that stage planning to go into a regeneration, unless like obviously you can adjust that sort of thing in the edit. Mm. But I would have expected more of a gradual ramping up of sentiment. Hmm. Uh, for one, uh, for one of a different word, but yeah, interesting. I suppose because it was the end of an era, and there was the thing of having to, then it had to leave the Doctor alone. So it's it's a tricky, hmm. it's a it's a tricky writing ask. You've got to get rid of your, you've got to get rid of your companion. And Moffat obviously wanted to give Bill a happy ending hmm. rather than <laughs> on that rather point, than actually, die as a Cyberman. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I was I was just going to say like. There are times when a character, like a companion, dies, and then they like. I, I don't. I don't want to be negative about Clara for a moment, but I'm gonna briefly. I found her death a bit unsatisfying in that she immediately came back. Yeah, and it was a big plot point. And I was prepared to have the same ill feelings here with Bill, but actually, it didn't happen. I think. Mm. It seems to land a lot more successfully to me. I'm not mm. quite sure why. Maybe because it was in good spirit. It was like, I really like Bill as a companion, and maybe mm. that's it. Like mm. She's just a really positive presence for that whole season. Mm. And it's always good to see more of Pearl Mackey in the character. But I think also the fact that 
she hadn't truly her death wasn't reversed mm. and if it and and if we and if it is considered reversed then so as a knock on effect is the death of everyone that has ever died in the doctor who universe mm. which i think that's what they're implying whenever anyone dies mm. they are plucked out of time and backed up mm. yeah. which which is a bit of a can of worms i suppose in many ways <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. If like the next time a villain dies and you want them back, oh, here's his <laughs> here's his glass avatar. Yeah, it's a bit silence in the library as well, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and demons of the Punjab. Oh, that's a good point. And uh, doesn't this go somewhere down? Yeah, isn't there related stuff with faction paradox and all of that stuff? The what? Sorry. Uh, faction paradox and stuff like that is. Um, I had a feeling there was some stuff to do with, uh, like people, you know. There being some some civilization in the far, far future made up of everyone who ever lived, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I don't feel it's a, I don't feel it's a cop out because my usual thing with this is I've grown to grown to live with prophecies of you know, like you know, RTD's habitual prophecies of doom and things, you know, and prophecies of doom and so on. But then that's a fairly standard, you know, the mis- misunderstood prophecy mm. or whatever. Escapes in the nick of time and un, un, you know, unexpected escapes and stuff are the meat and drink of Doctor Who because it's a cliffhanger adventure serial, you know, fundamentally. So I've, mm. I've got no problem with people putting off unlikely escapes, but it's just when they apparently kill someone and rinse, rinse it for all that emotion. Yes. When we did the pirate one and the whole yeah. the whole thing of you're, you're meant to sit there and apparently and emote over Believe. the fact that Rory has apparently died and it's Rory's just like it's a again. complete... Yeah. It's a complete yeah, waste waiting. of everyone's time because you just yes, it is. But of course, yeah, he's not exactly. dead. Why do you expect me to emote as if, you know? To why are yeah. you rinsing every emotional beat out of this mm. to yeah. make us think that he is? That's exactly the point. Mm. Is is how the faux death is treated mm. informs how we respond to the ultimate resurrection. Yeah, and the the Clara episode was heavily about what a dreadful decision she'd made mm. and all the implications of it mm. and just to completely switch tracks i was never fully on board with star trek discovery but there is one episode where a, a character is dying and an inordinate percentage of the episode is devoted to everyone saying their last goodbyes mm. and it is milked mm. it is interminable and then at the last minute he doesn't die mm. and what little good feeling i had towards that series <laughs> evaporated and then star trek committed the same thing again with captain picard if that's considered a spoiler we can maybe get rid of it <laughs> but he died yeah. and was replaced with a robot body and was therefore mm. exactly the same and it just needn't have happened at all mm. I, i'm really emotionally invested in that character and the, f- the fact that his death had no impact on me at all. Hmm. Is something indicates something might be amiss. Hmm. Not not that we're talking about Star Trek, but <laughs> the same is true in any any drama where you're emotionally <laughs> engaged with a character who dies. Yeah, it it strikes me it strikes me as being similar to things like in Kill the Moon, where obviously the moon is an egg and that has no consequence. Hmm. It's like that, but on an emotional level hmm. rather than hmm. a logical one. Hmm. Like your story has. The character in this case has a consequence, mm. and then that consequence is not fulfilling the dra- dramatic purpose it should. Mm. But yeah, like I said a minute ago, I think Bill's uh, resurrection here is dealt with very nicely. Mm. Well, that's the thing. I, I far prefer that that you know in the, those last few minutes that the Doctor falls, where she's you know you think, oh, oh poor Bill, you know your heart's your heart's breaking for it, and then Puddle Girl turns up and and saves her, and you think, oh, there's a there's a happy ending. That's you know that's lovely, and that's that's a good you know that gives you some emotional catharsis without having to go through the whole yeah just the, without the bad faith as it were. So so there's, so there's now two versions of Bill. One one in one case she's been turned into a puddle, and in the other she's a, she's a glass mannequin or whatever. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Well, the the glass mannequin just comes and goes. I mean, it was right. Clara, and then it was Nardole, yes. and it just. Well, yeah, the, gla- the glass mannequin version to. is the version from when Bill finally died, presumably. Oh, so we're, me- we're meant to understand it as being that. Is it in between 
where she's a Cyberman and, turn, and then turned into a puddle because she has actually died. No, because she remembers Puddle Girl coming back for her. I'm sorry, I can't remember. Oh, yes. No, you're puddle right. Puddle Girl's name. So, so this is presumably so she her is still memories alive, from when then, she... even though she's a puddle. Yeah. So this is presumably her experiences from when she actually died. Her memories from the moment of her death then uploaded and then used to recreate Bill to interact with the Doctor and she can rem- remember that and tell him. Which is nice because it means that the Doctor doesn't actually regenerate thinking that he failed Bill. Because I think we're allowed to believe that he remembers, he at least remembers all of these events. I don't think there's anything to indicate that he's going to so. forget any of it. I guess the um, I guess the first Doctor succumbs to some mem- some selective memory loss in the usual way. But You've just reminded me of a question. Where are Ben and Polly throughout this story. <laughs> Making their way back across the ice. Presumably the Doctor, the TARDIS comes back to exactly the, you know, the, the moment where it, so, the moment after it left. Okay, or yeah. actually not the moment after it left because, okay, there's a bit of faffing around over Antarctica that takes... I would assume that they left the cyber spaceship in, in one group. Hmm. So they wander off on their own or something? I mean, obviously, that's a Doctor Who trope of a companion wandering off on their own. It wouldn't be the... No, the Doctor, the doctor makes it back to the TARDIS before them, though, doesn't he? Uh, yeah, he shuts the door and they're, they're hammering on the door. Mm. Oh, ah, right, yes, OK, yeah. that's, that's good then. Consider my uh, point uh, correct. So far as I can remember... One of the most jarring bits of continuity that didn't quite connect up was when we left Rusty... He and the Doctor were on perfectly amicable terms. Mm. And then when Rusty's reintroduced in this, he's hell-bent on killing the Doctor, and the Doctor's well aware of that possibility. Mm. And that just leaves me confused. And he's not terribly moated about it either. Like He doesn't try to kill him that hard, and then he just says, oh, okay, I won't. Mm. So I don't know where the peril came from. Are we supposed to think that he's he's been driven mad by all the other Daleks trying to kill him? He seems really rational, though. Mm. Yeah, the Doctor says that that he will try and kill him, as if he knows there's an old grudge. But that's not present in their final yeah. confrontation in, into the Dalek. Gap for mm. gap for big finish to fill in, I think. Mm. Yeah. I think it's a, yes, I, I think one can... Yeah, there must have been a, a missing encounter or a missing piece of the story there. Just uh, sort of following on from the the Ben and Polly question mark, which I I think is a bit dubious. They they do have to just sort of be ignored hmm. because well, they're not even they, shown in the final scene, are they? When they cut back, no, the exactly. Right. Yeah, the Doctor sort of regenerates on his own. But I'm I'm not convinced that the logic of when the the Doctor lands a couple of hours later to return. Mm. Lethbridge Stewart to just before the truce because surely that wouldn't have worked because if he returned him later then that would have been after the after time was frozen time was frozen at a specific moment mm. the the german soldier would have had to have been frozen for that entire yes. amount of time i think it's about 2 hours i think he yes. said yeah but if time was frozen then it's it's not 2 hours later then you can't you yeah. can't move past it surely yeah, I think you're not unless it's very localized. Unless it's a bubble, yeah, it yeah. would have to be a bubble, wouldn't it? Yeah, just in that crater. Mm. Okay, well, no, except the camera panned out and we saw everything was frozen. That's so true. You can't... Well, a localized, th- a localized area, mm. I guess we can. Mm. Okay. But then actually, they... there were several, there were several shots of time freezing and unfreezing, implying there's a gradient, a spatial gradient. Mm. affecting when specific areas are frozen. So it's not all just, bam, everyone's frozen, bam, everyone's unfrozen. It's you're frozen, you're frozen, you're frozen, and it's it's sequential. So he could have he could have got into that mechanism by some skill that we're not privy to have, have caused the situation he was after. Fair enough. But yeah, you're right, it does, it does require some stretching of the jiggery pokery jiggery pokery of of the plot imagination i think it's mm-hmm. it's something i'm willing to give it a pass for and considering I and mean, that's one of the surprising things about this that, that this is a christmas day episode i mean okay it does pick up on the christmas truce being a big you know being obviously a another piece of our shared christmas folklore i guess but it's um it had, it had recently been in a uh 
um, John oh, Lewis. Oh, God, it had, hadn't it? Yes, yeah. A few years before, whenever. I think I think the introduction of the polystyrene Antarctica was specifically so we had snow at the beginning mm. of the episode. Mm. Yeah. That's a really bad set. <laughs> That's a really bad Antarctic set. It's not Those great, is it? Polystyrene icebergs look dreadful. Maybe that was a deliberate... Yeah, it's a homage. Mm. Yeah, let's say it's a homage. But um, but I think it's surprising that you know, in, in general, yeah, it it shows the it shows the fine line between how how serious you can get with anything on you know in that Christmas Day Christmas special slot. It's it feels to me it's surprisingly deep. Some of the stuff it does go into for for that for that sort of slot really, it's mm. not um it's not just wall to wall crowd pleaser like some of the earlier. Well, I don't know. I mean, the, with Russell T. Davis ones, you know, the the Voyage of the Damned or whatever it was called. Mm. The, the the you know, it, I mean, it is obviously it's a disaster movie, mm. but it it goes to some fairly dark places. He killed um, Kylie at Christmas, yeah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was, I, going in another direction, I thought it's interesting, given what we now know about you know Chibnall's vision for this show, how much they dial into this is the original mm. Doctor. Yeah. And you know he's definitely the first, <laughs> and and so on. And, and, and I mean, they hammer that point home several times mm. during the course of the story. Yeah. On that point, I can imagine I can <laughs> accept his unwillingness to regenerate much more readily than I can accept uh, Capaldi's. Not not mm. that it's for me to accept or otherwise, mm. but I can understand the first Doctor's reticence. It's his first time, mm. as far mm. as he's concerned. It might feel like death. Mm. Uh, whereas Capaldi, he's had it many times before. Mm. He, he but, knows exactly. But now, thanks to Chibnall, we know that Hartnell's regeneration wasn't his first uh-huh. time. Oh, but he doesn't, he doesn't know that. that. So that's mm. yeah. And I suppose with Capaldi, you, you could probably wave something around about it being the first new regeneration cycle. But I think it's more it's more psychological, and they don't. Well, I suppose they do. They do fix it. But I think that's the thing that that part of his unwillingness and world weariness is that is is that he is presumably thinks that he's just lived through wild enough in time and the doctor falls and everyone's ended up dead or you know and he's failed bill and so he's just had enough mm. but yeah i know as you say the whole question of whether they whether signers can control their regeneration is a i suppose that also dials into things like romana and um, mm. all sorts of I things was... doesn't it I was thinking it's, about um, that actually. Last of the Time Lords is probably the precedent where the master chooses not to regenerate. Yes, yeah, mm. true. I find I found the whole pontificating of Peter Capaldi's doctor very tiresome. Again, it, it overlaps with the knowingness because if we take what he's saying, his monologue at face value, he's he's asking should should the Doctor Who TV series continue? Mm. Which is which is an odd thing to stand and watch your lead character ask, mm. and it's a sad feeling, uh, and I don't, I don't, I don't get on with that very well. I mean, a lot of Stephen Moffat's stuff has a sort of maudlin quality to it, and obviously, being a regeneration story, that's that's fitting. But I, I don't know, it, it, this sort of introspection, I don't get anything out of. David Tennant's Time Lord Victorious and all his introspection about should he interfere and can he change time and and all of that. I don't like and I don't feel the need for these big questions that put a microscope on the format of the show. Mm. How long has the Doctor been travelling? How many lives has he affected? Should he keep doing Mm. it? You know, it's it's a weekly adventure serial. Mm. I don't think it bears that much scrutiny or the whole... The whole infrastructure starts to fall apart if you if you really want to worry about how many times he's visited and what is his morality and is he a pacifist and all of these other questions. You can't look at it too carefully because because it's just a patchwork of of nonsense over sixty years. <laughs> uh, just leave it alone. And well, just, that's, and just, it's a lot you know. of Moffat's yeah, especially Moffat's shtick. I think asking these big sort of meta meta questions about the Doctor and the show. Is you know it's certainly something that runs through his era, and I guess I guess you could say it's a it's almost a substitute for doing you know doing that thing that other maybe other fandoms do and other franchises do of overanalyzing and trying to 
trying to actually knot the continuity itself together. Whereas it feels like with Doctor Who, suppose... we don't do so much of that anymore. It's because it's really hard for us. Yes. <laughs> to do a complete U-turn on my criticism. At least it's something. At least it's something. And it was it provoked a thought and a reaction mm. in me. And and watching that hour of Doctor Who flew by with all of the innate issues and rankles that it provoked, uh, I was never once bored. Mm-hmm. It was engaging yeah. and exciting. So yeah. so maybe I'm maybe I'm being unfair that that suggesting that Doctor Who shouldn't look at itself isn't worth doing, because ultimately it has provoked a debate on the nature of storytelling in Doctor Who. Mm. Whether I like it or not is not really relevant. (laughs) I do quite like the, uh, on this point, I mean, I I generally agree with those concerns, but on this point, I like the fact that the introspection is talking about whether life is a fairy tale, and it's not, but the fact that the Doctor is there actually makes it a little more bearable Mm. for the population of the universe. Mm. And not to get too sort of self-feeding in terms of the show argument-wise, it is quite similar to the show in its own right. A lot of people have a bleak existence, but then they watch Doctor Who, and it's all of a sudden a lot nicer for them. It, it, it's very near being that sort of heavy-handed comparison you're talking about, Gavin, but I think it lands quite nicely for me. A universe without the Doctor scarcely bears thinking about. It does not. Oh, it's, it's something I wanted to... I don't I don't know if this had any any meaning but I noticed there's quite a few instances of the doctor's theme from season 1 from 2005. Yeah, I noticed that. And I can't think why. I mean it obviously tugs at the emotional strings a bit because it's harking back to the when the show came back for the first time. And it's a lovely piece of music, but I can't I don't think it's been reused much. No. And now all of a sudden here at the end of this era it comes on and it's really. I, I just can't help but notice it and wonder yeah. why. Are we talking about, exactly are we talking the about Flavius' theme or the old Chancellor? Oh. Yeah, is that the end? <laughs> I always have felt that that has something to do with regeneration energy and like, because I, I remember that playing in. Yeah, I wondered that, Christian but I think invasion. we first hear it with the TARDIS, don't we? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, true. Um, and it's on the CD track listing as the Doctor's theme. Mm. Mm. Well, it's maybe Goldswan song as well, so maybe. Mm. Oh, of course, maybe that's it for now. Was, it, was this just the, the phase when so maybe, uh... Murray Gold wasn't getting paid enough, so he was just recycling all his <laughs> old tracks? <laughs> well, you can't blame him for revisiting a greatest hit. Maybe. I mean, I don't think it's a direct. Don't think it's a direct lift. I think it's a re-staged mm. version of mm. that melody. So mm. I think some effort has gone into doing that. So you think this is more of a Murray Silver tune? <laughs> no, I, I I really like this. I, I want to make that clear. I I love that tune, and I love Murray Gold's music. Yeah. Yes. I'm just wondering why why that theme and motif has cropped up now. And I, I say the music maybe... this is a lot better than Attack of the Sun. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yes. There's that score's different. I think it's been going around in my head wow, throughout the last wow, week. Wow. <laughs> yeah. The fact that they, they even resorted to a sort of wow, wow, wow yeah. sound effect is um, a low point. Yeah. For, for us as well as the characters. <laughs> <laughs> Should we start talking about you know anything that these two stories have got in common? I suppose the obvious thought that occurs to me is that nothing's quite the way we remembered it. Mm-hmm. Or, or or indeed how it actually is if you go back and have a look at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, they're cheeky enough, as as you pointed out about an hour ago, to actually use the original footage in 10th Planet, but that just counterpoints how far away we are from it. I mean, mm-hmm. in particular, the love, pride, hate, fear... It, he's not even got remotely the same energy. No, the, de- the delivery is not quite right. Mm. Yeah, not that I'm an actor critic. No, well, but I mean, you don't have to be a, a genius to say that the reading of the Castellans line in the Five Doctors of <laughs> "No, not the mind probe" is is an, un, is an unusual <laughs> emphasis in a sentence. And I think similarly, he, he doesn't mind it if it's a mind lotion. You can yeah, yeah, that's on. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's no there's no problem at all with that. But if it's a probe, well, golly, that's going to be a problem. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be an impression. But the 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 disjoint there, 
it just makes you wonder whether it's the same character. Yeah, it feels yeah. like. Well, I mean, you say it doesn't have to be an impression, but it's it's trying to precisely recreate a specific <laughs> moment, yeah. shot for shot, yeah. with the exact mm. framing and background and grading and everything. Mm. It should be an impression, surely. Otherwise, what are they doing? <laughs> Why not? Yeah, but you wouldn't mind if it wasn't one of the clips that they dragged out of the archives and repeated in 1980s Doctor Who. We all know mm. the absolute cadence yeah. of it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's even uh, it's got horrible interlacing. Oh, it has. It really grinds yeah. my gears. It's like they just ripped just... the DVD. <laughs> Same problem with Name of the Doctor, wasn't it? Yeah, that was terrible. Mm. Yeah, and, and obviously both stories are very heavy on the exposition and the continuity. I mean, mm. I, I guess that's sort of ine- well, it's it's inevitable with this second one, and it's just what we le- what we got with the first one. There is no uh, threat in either story. Yeah, we're misled to believe that Halley's comet is the big worry in Attack of the Cybermen, but there's absolutely no evidence to support this. <laughs> So the Cybermen are just, you know, doing their own thing. Blowing up their own planets. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Something to do. It's not their fault, the Cylons, Clowns. I called it Clowns. Silence. Yeah. Uh, You might have to edit that bit out. That was was inept, wasn't it? (laughs) Well, I mean, so so talking about the the Cryons, you know, that that we get a, a new... We get a new thing brought in, don't we? You know, we've got the cryons in that, we've got the testimony in this. Yeah, but both look mm. quite glassy, kind of, uh, yeah, if you want. Yeah. Female, female mm. uh, alien presence. Yeah. Mm. The only other female in the story. Yeah. <laughs> True. There is quite a lot of testosterone, isn't there? Mm. Mm. Was No Man's Land filmed in a quarry? Well, yes, yeah, yeah. I was about to, to, to sort of try and draw some parallel between Morris Colborn and and um, Mark Gatiss, but I think that's stretching. I was reaching for that as well, but yeah, cold settings. Yeah, I don't think that's that's reaching a bit. Antarctica and uh, Telos. They both have both have a bald supporting supporting character. <laughs> Point. <laughs> Although, sorry, Nardole's hair is invisible. Invisible. He's not bald. No. In the opposite way that Matt Smith was. uh, Well, not bald, Mm. but just shaved head. They both have comedy performers in supporting roles. I don't feel I touched on Brian Glover enough when we were talking about Attack, by the way. I actually really like his... I really like his performance and him generally. I'm a massive Alien 3 fan. Mm. Of course, I like T, so... It's, yeah, it's just a shame he was a bit underused, but I'm glad he was there. Mm. Well, I mean, he's a, he's a bit underused generally, you know, in life, in the sense that he, you know, he is, he's a strong actor, but what you tend to find him in is light entertainment parts mm. in, yeah. in archive telly. I believe, didn't they? I think some of the, they may have done rewrites to keep him in part two. Oh, really? whether that was the, Whether that was the character or the... Again, it's something I vaguely pick up off the DVD. So in part two, pretty much... That would make it even harder to untangle that plot because the reasoning he was there was as a bodyguard for Lytton Mm. in his second phase of his plan. Yeah. Mm. And hang on, does he get killed with um, those other two? Stratton and Bates. Mm. Yes. Well, they send him off with that, into that plot. And I noticed he wasn't wasn't lugging around some diamonds, so I guess they were going to pay him later. Because they were going to pay him in three million oh, yes. pounds worth of diamonds. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the other thing, of course, I mean, I've already mentioned it, but I thought they were both Cybermen stories, but really, Twice Upon a Time isn't. Although it turns out to be a bit of a Dalek story, mm. briefly. Well, they both revisit the locations of famous Cybermen yes. stories. Yes. Yeah. I was interested, by the way, as you touched on uh, Rusty the Dalek, I don't know if this was the case when he appeared in Into the Dalek, but his voice delivery by Nick Briggs seems to be a lot softer. Like his intonation is not really Dalek-y as much. I don't know to what extent that's intentional. I mean, I guess it is intentional because it's quite evident. 
but I quite liked that. I, I'm normally I'm normally shy away from hearing dialects that go outside my limited sphere of what I expect from a Dalek voice, and I surprised myself by actually quite enjoying Rusty here. You must hate most Daleks, most most nineteen sixties Dalek stories. Then no, they're they're okay because they're of their time. Ah, okay. Right. Although, of course, I would like a stronger modulation in A Dark Invasion of Earth. Yeah. Mm. It's probably the worst offender in my book. Mm, true. Yeah, Some of power's not very good. Day, isn't it? And Mission true. to yeah. the Unknown. Mm. They, they're fixed day now, so at least, at least if you want more, you can have it. Yeah. Yeah. We done? So, I can't, I can't think of any more points I might yeah, want to that's make. that's great. Thanks for listening to Something Who. If you've enjoyed what we've done, please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And there's a whole raft of other episodes for you to listen to while you're waiting for the next one to land. And also, if you do like something, who please tell your friends, your family, your colleagues, your neighbours, and random strangers on public transport. But if you hate us, don't tell us all. Oh, and, and why have you got this far into the podcast? Anyway, thanks very much to our contributors, Gav and Giles and Ant. Bye. Cheers, guys. Enjoyed it. Goodbye. Yeah, great. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been great fun, fun chatting to you. That's been great fun as well. I actually enjoyed these episodes, both the highs and the lows. Um, I've not seen Twice Upon a Time since transmission, so it was nice to get back into it. There we go. Getting into the spirit of something new. I remembered something else I was going to say. Stephen Moffat said that he had an amusing game running whereby he would try to see if he could make an initialism or an acronym say something amusing mm-hmm. with his episode titles, and I wondered whether yeah. Twice Upon a Time was the, <laughs> the closest he got to yeah, his I've... outrageous achievement that he was aiming for. The story thread of the Doctor pondering whether or not he was a good man or whether there was good in the universe mm-hmm. followed on from Into the Dalek. So that was a callback to the the rusty question because he ended that story with telling him that he he at least tried. So that was a, a, another interesting bit of continuity. What led me on to that? So does he say? Is that the one where he says you would make a good Dalek? Yes, it happens twice in the shows. Um, the Dalek and Dalek says it to Eccleston in series yeah. one, and then it happens again in Twice Upon a Time and into the Dalek. Yeah, so. Was Capaldi aged up for Twice Upon a Time? Because I I went and had a look back at Into the Dalek mm-hmm. to to check that bit of continuity, and he looks at least a decade younger. Mm. It's really surprising. I know he's got short hair in Into the Dalek, but mm. he has so many wrinkles in Twice Upon a Time that I wondered whether they had applied a little aging makeup and uh, i feel a bit guilty if they didn't well if they have it's really good <laughs> mm. i i must say i looked at him and thought he looked pretty knackered yeah it kind of it, i guess it surprised me watching it i was thinking yeah i, I didn't, don't remember him looking quite like that it's mm. even sort of referenced in the dialogue when the first the first doc says oh i thought i would be younger and it's like i am mm. younger like, mm. it's, uh, it's almost as if the dialogue is expecting him to look a bit old mm. Well, but of course he isn't younger. Peter Capaldi was older in Twice Upon a Time than William Hartnell ever was playing the Doctor, although obviously not as old as his mate who's, who's stepping in for him. Mm. Richard Herndall was the first first Doctor that I saw. Oh, right. <laughs> so my view of the first Doctor is somewhat skewed. So you saw the original, you thought, who's this? Is this <laughs> yes. It was... What would have been the first William Hartnell that I saw? Might have been an unearthly child. Hmm. I definitely saw Five Doctors first. That was that was my introduction mm-hmm. to the first Doctor. Well, it's um, and it's even weirder for you know someone of my generation because you see a few clips. You know, you've got you've got William Hartnell in Earthshock. Oh wait, sorry, we we we've got the Five Faces in in nineteen eighty one. I suppose so we get to see the whole of that, and then we get clips here and there. 
and then we get the five doctors mm. and there there are a few um film nights as well but but i mean yeah i didn't, didn't see him in very much until right at the end of the 80s mm. i think my first hartnell was the chase because it, oh, yeah. came, it came on video with remembrance in 1993. Mm. Uh -huh. i'm not sure if that's well, a good introduction or otherwise yeah well yeah. I, I mean you, you know you, you get um, you get two identical first doctors in that of course <laughs> of course they are indistinguishable <laughs> <laughs> I feel the last 15 are going to need to tighten you up a bit. Oh, uh, the, uh, don't worry. There's, 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 there'll be plenty that hits the cutting room floor, but that's fine. 